Now turn, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Now therefore, my son, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things which thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned except he strive lawfully. The husband that laboreth must be first partaker of the fruits. The Apostle Paul is instructing young Timothy. He's telling them that what he has testified to among many witnesses, what he's heard from him, he desires to be preserved and carried on and maintained in the church of Jesus Christ. And in this setting, he describes those who are members of the church as good soldiers. We are soldiers of the cross. We're soldiers of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now he says, the task that you have is to take these things which I've set before you and put them in the hands of faithful men who carry on after we're gone. And these must be men who will be able. They'll have big gifts. They'll have ability. They'll have certain qualifications that will enable them to teach others also. And out of this comes this marvelous concept of the ordination and the preservation of the church, the ordination vows, committing men, binding men to doctrines, binding men to the foundations of the church. And Paul is saying, young man, Timothy, you must preach the gospel today, but you must make certain that this gospel will be preached in the generation following you. And our problem is finding faithful men. Our problem is finding able men. Our problem is finding the man needed to lead the work and administer the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our problem. And the longer you live, the more difficult the problem becomes. And the more we deal with men, the more we realize how flexible and how fickle and how unstable so many are. Those in whom you put confidence, you find that there's a weakness that crops out after a period of time. And men in whom you delighted and thought would be the very finest of men are disaffected and they turn aside. And the apostle is speaking about these things. And he's saying, therefore, you endure hardness. If you're going to be a soldier, you must be a soldier who'll take the knocks, who'll take the abuse, who'll take the bullets of the opposition. You must endure hardness. 
And you must be prepared to persevere in the midst of all the opposition that will arise to you because you stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Endure hardness. And then he says, as a good soldier. And here you have this glorious concept of men being in a warfare. They are equipped to do battle. And they must be good soldiers. They must not run from the fight. They must not desert the ranks. They must not seek excuses and justifications for their own failures. We must be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. And beloved, when you think of the conflict in which we're now engaged and our young men are being taken away from us by the draft and they're going into the armed services of the country to be soldiers and they're good soldiers and some of them receive the Congressional Medal of Honor and these distinctive awards which are conferred upon them because of their valor and their courage and they serve even beyond the normal course of duty. Beloved, when you come into the area of the Church of Jesus Christ, when you come into this field where you and I are called to be soldiers, when you and I are called to take a stand and be a part of a ministry that God has put in our hands, we must be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. And this is the call that Paul gave to Timothy. And then he goes on and he says here, if we're going to be good soldiers, we must not only endure hardness, but we must recognize that we can't be entangled. We can't get ourselves all involved in the things about us which are going to distract us and which will hinder the development and the strengthening of our position as a soldier. He doesn't entangle himself with the affairs of this life. There is a separation. There is a consecration. There is a commitment that is demanded of the gospel of those of us in order that we might please him who hath called us to be a soldier. We have been called to be a soldier by Jesus Christ, the great head and the king of the church. And then he moves on in the third place and he says, if we're going to strive, we must strive lawfully. We must strive honestly. We must strive with the truth. We mustn't attempt to use deception or lies or fraud or deceit. We must strive lawfully. And then we'll be crowned for our victories when they are won. And finally, the husband must be partaker of the fruits. We need men of experience. We need men who have been tested. We mean men who, uh, out of the troubles and the struggle, have shown themselves. And there must needs be divisions among you that they which are approved may be made manifest. Many, many of the issues that are in the hearts of men are not brought out and made manifest until some question is raised and then some are on this side and some are on that side. It's not until some issue comes up to the fore and you say, well, I'm surprised. I didn't have any idea that they had such ideas as these. But it took this to bear their hearts and to open up the questions. There must needs be these questions among you that they which are approved may be made manifest. We need men who will endure hardness. We need men who will not entangle themselves in the affairs of this life. We need men of experience. 
and men who will be able to take the responsibilities of leadership and people can have confidence in them because they're tried and because they're true. Now this is what the apostle is saying. Oh, beloved, as you look at our experiences today, we need the older men, but we need to work in the younger men alongside us so that they can profit from the experience and the knowledge and the learning of the men that are just beside them. And one of the things that amazes me and one of the things that troubles your pastor right now, that I've reached a point in the ministry of the gospel wherein even some of the agencies that we're connected with, things happen, things are done by people that have been brought in and we thought they were all right, and they are, of course, but not knowing the history and not knowing the background and not knowing some of these instances, immediately they want to do something that's absolutely out of line with our testimony and with our standard. And maybe that's one of the disillusionments that men have as they move up the road of life. And they, they, they think that those in the second generation understand, but they don't. They just haven't been able to take it in or to comprehend. And you preach and you preach and you preach and you preach and so much of it just seems to roll off the backs of people like water from a duck or something else. And our problem, Paul is saying here, young Timothy, the things which you've heard of me, the things which are testified by many witnesses. Here's the resurrection of Christ. It was testified by many witnesses. These are the things which you are to take and to commit to faithful men. Don't you put them in the hands of unfaithful men. And some of you people look at the pastor and you think of the obligations and responsibilities that we have. We need schools. We need a Christian high school. We need a college. We need a strong college with high standards of scholarship and learning, but dedicated and consecrated to the Holy Scriptures. We need a theological seminary. We need these places. And your pastor through these years has been struggling with these questions in his own heart and his own soul. And we're doing everything in our power to try to do what Paul says we must do. These things, these same things, you commit into the hands of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Oh, the ability to teach, the gift of a preacher. Oh, that God would raise up. This is what we must have if we're going to carry on this great ministry of the gospel from our day. And beloved, if we can't commit it into faithful hands from our hands to their hands, then we have failed in our generation. But as I lay that before you from this great passage in 2 Timothy chapter 2, I must tell you that we are confronted with complications and we are confronted with conditions in our day that make this matter even more imperative that we understand what's involved. Paul says, what well, I've given you the same, this deposit, this revelation, this message, Take it like I've given it to you and put it in faithful men's hands. But in our day, 
that's the place where this whole thing is breaking down. Our generation has said, well, it was good maybe for 400 years ago, 300 years ago, but it's not good enough for today. Times are changing and we must adjust our message to the time. And so we have to create a new message and make a new program and develop a new creed and we've got to change all these things and then whatever we get, we'll put it in the hands of some men somewhere that we're trying to train. Let them take care of it. And that's the problem that you and I are facing tonight. And right out here in Oregon, next week, the General Assembly of the United Presbyterian Church is going to lay aside the great creed of our church that we've had. They're going to lay it aside. They're bringing in a new one. It's a confession of 1967, and I've been preaching on it to try to inform you people so you'd know these things. It's my duty to do it. And so we're preaching on it Sunday night after Sunday night. We've just ordained some elders and deacons and installed them in the life of our church. And I've just come this week from Cambridge where we attended this consultation on church union. And there are two things I want to tell you about it and then I want to develop the significance of it <clears throat> for all who are listening to us. <clears throat> this consultation... <clears throat> on church union. They call it COCU, C-O-C-U, COCU. I sometimes get mixed up and call it cuckoo. But it's COCU. And 10 of the major denominations of the country under the leadership of Dr. Blake are seeking now to develop a church, a one church, a one church. Dr. Blake, of course, when he initiated it with Bishop Pike in San Francisco said that they ultimately intended to unite all the churches, including even the Roman Catholic Church. And he said the goal is one church. And here it is, right on our doorstep, right in our very presence. And the meeting in Cambridge was supposed to spell out the structure of the new church. They've already spelled out what they're going to do about doctrine. They're not going to have any creed. It's going to be like the new, con the new confession. They're not going to have any binding creed. Everybody will have whatever they want to take, and they can get some blessings out of these, but there's no binding creed of the new church. That's been decided. Same type of thing that they have in the new confession. But after they've disposed of these doctrinal matters very conveniently, they find themselves confronted with an even more difficult problem. It has to do with the structure of the church. So here are the churches that are Episcopal with bishops. Here are churches which are Presbyterian and Reformed with elders and no bishops at all. Here are churches that are congregational and independent in their church government. And the difference between the independent and the Presbyterian is very great, where you have rule by elders and the representatives of the people. The difference between the Presbyterian and the Episcopal is one of the major struggles of Protestant history of the Reformation and what happened in Great Britain between Scotland and between England and between uh, Knox and the others who sought to develop the, the uh, ecclesiastical system which is in line with the papacy. 
So you have three structures which they're going to try to combine. Somehow or other, they're going to unite them and get out of this a united church. And I was particularly interested in the meeting in Cambridge because we were anxious to see how they were going to solve it. Because you've got contradictions here. If you've got a bishops in the Episcopal form, you can't have the Presbyterian. And if you have a Episcopal bishops and authority of the bishops to rule and to point and direct, you can't have the Congregational. The people have no say in it. So if you're going to have the Congregational, you can't have the bishops. And if you're going to have the Presbyterian, you can't have the bishops or the other either. And you've got a structural conflict. It's there. It's been in the history of the church all these years. And so they're going to try to bring this together, and I was anxious to see how they were going to resolve it. And you know what they did up at Boston? They didn't resolve it. They couldn't resolve it. They were in such conflict behind the scenes that they couldn't come to any agreement as to how they would work this thing out. So do you know what they did? They did the most amazing thing. They said, we won't bring in any structural pattern now. We won't go further with outlining this structural pattern, but we will authorize the establishment of a provisional council, which will be above all of the denominations that are going to unite. And we'll have this provisional council up at the top, and this provisional council will be authorized in the plan of union. And so, when any church approves of this plan of union, which is now to be spelled out for them, they will be under the provisional council. And this provisional council will be above the general assembly, it'll be above the conferences, it'll be at the top of provisional council, and this provisional council will have delegates sent to it by the various churches, and over a period of years, they will work out the structure and develop a constitution. So they have decided that they're going to set up a provisional council, and people will join in the church union enterprise, and as soon as they approve of the plan, they're united. But they have no structure yet, and they have no constitution yet, but it was even said that it may even take a generation or more to work out the constitution of their union. So what they have done is face the fact that their contradictions in structure are so great that they can't resolve them now. They'll say we're more interested in unity than we are anything else, so we'll set up a provisional council up here, we'll all get under it, and as we move along with our experience and our ways we will somehow or other later on develop a constitution after we're united. That's like marrying a man before you agreed to marry. That's what it is. No platform, no understanding, we just go in under it. And that is what happened up at Boston, Massachusetts, Cambridge, Massachusetts, in this consultation on church union. But, beloved, in effect, when they have put a provisional council at the top, you have an episcopacy, episcopal authority that's going to rule over that. And in effect, they are moving to a form of church government which will involve the rule by the bishops and the episcopacy. 
Now, when I make that statement to you, I shall remind you that Dr. Eugene Carson Blake, who has been the chief spokesman in all of this, said some time back that if they were going to have a church union, they would have to accept the Episcopal form because the Episcopalians were not willing to give up their Episcopal form of government, and therefore it would be necessary for the Presbyterians to give up their form and accept bishops and accept the episcopacy. Well, we've been waiting to see how this would unfold, and so this week, Presbyterian life, which is circulated now in so many of the Presbyterian homes, came out with a long-anticipated article, Presbyterians and Bishops, by Norman Victor Hope, professor of church history, Princeton Theological Seminary. Now, beloved, it was out of Princeton that they had the chairman of the new confession. Now we're getting out of Princeton this line that Presbyterians can have bishops and they should be willing to accept the episcopacy. But may I read you from this article? And this is in line now. We've just ordained our elders. We've just got our beacons, our deacons, and we are Presbyterian. We have uh, the Presbyterian form of government. Listen to this, quote, in connection with this consultation on church union, that's C-O-C-U, Blake has stated that the eventual unity of American Protestants can be achieved only when the separated church bodies accept bishops as an integral element in the United Church. It may be supposed that in making this statement, Blake was simply pointing out an obvious truth, namely that Episcopalians will in no circumstances give up bishops as part of the price of Christian unity. On the contrary, they would regard episcopacy as one of the most valuable and enriching contributions which they could make to such eventual church union. So when Dr. Blake runs up against the Episcopalians and they say we won't give up the Episcopacy, Dr. Blake says, all right, we'll have to give up the Presbyterian system to be able to get into your Episcopal system. And beloved, your Episcopal system then puts them one step closer, you see, to return to the Episcopacy and the papacy of the Roman Catholic Church, which is the ultimate goal of this reunion program. I'm reading from Presbyterian Life, of May the 1st. However, Dr. Blake has been sharply criticized by some Presbyterians for his statement concerning episcopacy. These critics maintain, in effect, that Presbyterianism is inherently anti-episcopal, that Presbyterians and episcopacy do not mix, and they didn't mix in the old world, and they haven't mixed, and they can't mix, ladies and gentlemen. If you got bishops, you have the episcopacy. If you have Presbyterians and the parity of the clergy, you have the freedom and the liberty that we enjoy in the Presbyterian families. And for Presbyterians to accept bishops would be tantamount to selling their Calvinistic heritage for a mess of Episcopal pottage. 
Now the great historian of Princeton Seminary proceeds to tell us that John Calvin himself wasn't opposed to the Episcopacy, and he proceeds now to tell us that actually John Calvin in Geneva only had a little, uh, a little consistory. All he had was a session. There wasn't enough there to have sort of an Episcopacy anyhow. And then he proceeds to tell us that John Knox also in Scotland wasn't irrevocably committed to this concept of Presbyterian doctrine, which is, in according to my knowledge of the history, absolutely misreading it. And then he comes on and he says, quote, so present-day Presbyterians should be willing to consider the possibility of merging with the Episcopalian church with an open and unprejudiced mind. So out of Princeton's historical department comes the line now that if Presbyterians give up their Presbyterian form of government, they still are Presbyterians and they can still continue to go on and join in this new church union where you will have bishops and the Episcopacy. I was waiting for this hour to develop when the Presbyterians would say, yes, we'll lay aside our form of government the freedom and the equality of the parity of the clergy and our rule by elders. We'll lay all that aside and all that is meant in freedom and it was out of this Presbyterian form of a representative form of government with a, a Republican style of administration that our U.S. federal government was patterned, ladies and gentlemen. And now they're telling us that we must abandon it and go into this great union which is here just before us and Dr. Blake is taking the leadership in it. You know, before we get through, you and I are going to be about the only ones that have Presbyterian government left. This whole thing is moving so very, very rapidly. Well, at uh, Cambridge, when these matters were brought up, and we spoke out about there being a super church, that they were developing this super church. And I was interviewed on one of the television programs, and the gentleman doing the interviewing then went over to the chairman of the consultation, David G. Caldwell, and he said to him uh, how he felt about uh, the demonstration that was being put on there. And then the chairman said, quote, it, referring to us, shows that they recognize that what's going on is terribly important and terribly threatening to some of the concepts of church which they hold. Beloved, he stated it right. It is terribly important. They're laying the structure, laying the foundation now, and they're moving on, and it is terribly threatening to the concepts of church which we hold. I see it. I want you to see it. I want every Christian in this country to see it. And it is revolution. It's completely changing the whole Protestant structure, the Protestant freedom. They're going to put us under bishops and episcopal authority and move back toward the Roman Catholic Church as they have planned. Now here's a gentleman who was up there, Mr. Oliver Schroeder, and I want to read you a statement about his appraisal of what they're doing. Quote, What we are trying to do is to take ten units, bring them together into one, and lift them up into something greater than the sum of the ten. 
That means every one of us is not to become a part of something that equals ten, but something even greater, something that does not exist today. They know what their dream is. They know what their plan is. They're going to develop this all-powerful one-world church. Paul says, Son, take the things you've heard of me, knowing of whom you've learned them. Commit them to faithful men. Don't throw it away. Don't throw it aside. Now part of this revolution that's taking place in our country is, of course, this tremendous assault that's being made upon those of us who are challenging it all. But before I develop that for you for just a moment, there by Harvard Square in Cambridge where we were, we developed a little lyric that we're going to popularize now all over the country and all over the world. You sing it to row, row, row your boat. Last night I was in a great meeting in Providence, Rhode Island. We had a marvelous meeting up there, ladies and gentlemen. We got two people to give us $1,000 last night. And we sang it in that auditorium, and people really sang it. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. But may I read it to you? It has the heart of the issues in it. I'm not going to sing it. Don't worry about that. <clears throat> Maybe we can sing it tonight. Maybe we can get the choir to sing it. But uh, row, row, row your boat, koku, koku, down the stream. Ecumenical, ecumenical, what a monstrous dream. Row, row, row your boat, Blake and Pike and team. Ecumenical, ecumenical, this is Babylon's theme. Row, row, row your boat, NCC Supreme. Ecumenical, ecumenical, now their open theme. Row, row, row your boat, WCC in three. Ecumenical, ecumenical, Moscow, Rome, Geneva. That's it. Now, what's taking place from where you and I stand has many elements in it that we're not comprehending. But there has been organized this group now to oppose us and stop, seek to limit our ministry on the radio and the like, headed by Franklin H. Littell. And he's just written an article which came into my hand, which I want you to hear, The Growing Church Struggle in America. The evidence is growing, not only are American Protestant leaders and boards and agencies under bitter attack, but the fight is being carried into the precincts. The precincts are not in this time those invested by the extremists before the 1964 convention of the Republican Party. The precincts 
of which we speak are the local congregation. And then he goes on to say, <clears throat> from one side an open attack is made on the boards and agencies and leaders of the major denominations by guerrilla forces led by Carl McIntyre, Edgar Bundy, Billy James Hargis, and the like. What is significant about this article, so far as you and I are concerned, is that we are getting through and there is now being recognized this tremendous unrest and the struggle that is down throughout the pews in these churches. And all you need to do is to go to some of the rallies that I've been in recently and see these people where they come from all these churches. They are coming. And we are in a position now to provide leadership and to provide help to these people, the like of which we have never been in before. On Friday evening of this week, beloved, I spoke in Minneapolis, and as you heard on the radio, our hall, which we had rented, the labor temple in Minneapolis was canceled on us very at the end of the meeting, very close to the end of, the, of our period. And it disrupted our meeting considerably. But the labor hall in Minneapolis is an open hall, and everybody uses it, sort of between St. Paul and Minneapolis. And when our Mr. Hengen went to reserve it, he told them who was the speaker, what the purpose was. The man says, all right, anybody can have this hall just so they don't advocate the forcible overthrow of our government. The hall was $125. He accepted the $50 deposit, and we went ahead and made our announcements for two weeks. And then on Friday, <clears throat> it was Friday uh, a week ago, the manager called our man and said, Sir, we've had orders from Washington not to permit McIntyre to speak in this hall. Six-page letter that came from headquarters, they said, in Washington. He said, we can't, we have to obey Washington. We have to obey our headquarters. And so <clears throat> we were thrown out of the hall. We couldn't get any other hall. We went and got an old armory. People came 250. <clears throat> One family came 750 miles to that meeting in Minneapolis. They went to this hall. We had a sign there. <clears throat> There's a great crowd went to that hall. They couldn't get in. Many of them came over to our place, but some of them it was late. They just gave up. And we also were having not too good a weather. But I ran into uh, an order from Washington saying that we couldn't speak in that hall after we had agreed to it and paid the deposit. I'm virtually shut out of Minneapolis. I can't get in there now. The only way I can get in Minneapolis is to rent a, a, rent a ballroom in some hotel. That's about the only place you can get into that city at the present moment. But when I got to the place, a young lad came to me and said, Dr. McIntyre, I'm a senior in the high school here. He says, I plan to come to your Shelton College next year. But he says, I want you to see this. And here was the senior scholastic, which is used in nearly all the high schools of this country. He says, you're in it, Dr. McIntyre. I said, well, let me see. And here is a feature article running over about eight pages, Extremist in America. Vigilant watchdogs are obstructive dropouts. And it has the usual line. In fact, it actually quotes the article from TV Guide. 
And we're radical. We don't believe in democratic processes. It mentions the communist as the extremist on the left, but then proceeds to say that the Communist Party is no threat to us anymore. It's too small. And when it comes to the extremist on what they call the right, they list here the Nazi Party, the Ku Klux Klan, and here's their pictures. Here's the cross, burning the cross. Here's the swastika here, a picture of the swastika. And right under it, in this paragraph, they also include Carl McIntyre and Dan Smoot and Billy James Hargis and Major Bundy and the American Council of Christian Churches. I said, young man, where did you get this? Well, he says, you have to subscribe to it. He says, I got it. I said, when did you get it? I said, this morning. I said, how long did it take you to find out that this was a smear article? He says, just about 10 minutes when I ran into your name. Just about 10 minutes when I ran into your name. Now here they come, beloved, into a high school publication to seek to discredit us with the high school students of this country associating us with the Nazi party and the Ku Klux Klan. There it is. Now this is serious. But why is this being done? It is being done because I have just told you right here there's a growing struggle in all these churches. It's across this land. And we're getting over these barriers and into the hearts of thousands of people. And the only way in the world they can stop it, they can't answer the fact that they themselves say that we're laying aside the Westminster Confession. These elders stood here and took this vow. Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and the New Testament to be the word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice? They took it. That's the vow every Presbyterian has taken all these 400 years. But no longer after next week. That's the thing of ancient history. After next week, it's gone. They can't deny that this revolution is taking place. They can't deny what they're doing with the structure of the church. They can't deny these things. They're doing it. And the only way they can get back at us is to associate us with the Nazi party and put us in the minds of the people with the Ku Klux Klan or something else. And it's a strategy and a weaponry that's being used to make possible the revolution and to deceive and mislead the people. And beloved, as I close this message today, you and I have a responsibility since God has spared us. God has delivered us. God has enabled us to preserve our faith free and separate. You and I have a responsibility to our country. You and I have a responsibility to the churches in the day in which you and I live. You and I have a responsibility to South Jersey, to West Jersey, to Monmouth Presbytery. We have a responsibility right in this immediate area, in this hour of decision, in this great moment of crisis. You and I have that responsibility. And may God give us grace to fulfill it. And let's be willing to do anything we possibly can to get over these barriers and get through to the people. And when I received this letter this week from this gentleman up in North Jersey saying, I have, I want to pay for 1,000 of your books and I can provide you the names of every elder in the Synod of New Jersey and I want your book to go to them. We should see that it goes. And you and the rest of you people who are members of this church 
ought to be willing by the grace of God to get out and work and stand and testify and distribute literature in books and help us alert this area. If we don't, beloved, once they get their Episcopal church and their totalitarian set up as it moves back to Rome and these powers move over as they do into the political realm, then you and I are going to feel the pressures and the squeeze from the powers of the state that we've never felt before. That's the road ahead of us. Your pastor sees it. Your pastor's involved in the great struggle. And your pastor's going to stay right here and lift his voice as we preach these great issues and show you people that the only way anybody can be saved is not by a powerful church and a great super organization. Oh, that these men would be done with their folly and they would turn and preach the gospel and preach the blood and have men saved and develop churches that are upon the rock, which is the infallible word of God. Good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Oh, my son, Timothy, take what you've heard of me. Take what you've had from witnesses. Put them in the hands. The same thing commit to faithful men. And endure hardness. I want my congregation to begin to endure a little hardness. I want my congregation to understand what it means that we're not in tie, we're not in, in, involved, and we don't entangle ourselves. And I want my congregation to say, yes, we are husbandmen who've had some experience through the years, and out of the testing of these years, we are going to set the course and be among the testimonies that will preserve these great and glorious truths. Beloved, I'm speaking to you this morning. Beloved, my heart goes out to you this morning. I see it, and I want you to see it, and I want you to understand it, and then I want you to help in every way we can as we appeal to God. And I invite every single member of this church to come with us on Wednesday night to this great prayer meeting. It'll be a historical prayer meeting in this church on Wednesday night. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, as we see what's going on, especially now, all this matter in the high schools among the senior scholastic, and Lord, as we see the efforts being made to move into these areas to discredit men, help us, Lord, take care of us, be with us. For Christ's sake we pray, amen. All right, hymn number 512, the King of love my shepherd is 512 
Father, wilt thou bless the message as it went out by radio and especially as it's heard on these various stations. Lord, we thank thee that thou hast given us faith to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Bless our people, bless our church, and comfort us together, and especially be with the pastor and give him the grace and the strength that he needs. And now may grace and mercy and peace be upon us from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen.